Have you any idea where we are, Doctor? Where is not as important as why, young man? Everything's in a mess. You didn't touch the controls, did you? No. Were you? I was thinking. Yes. Uh, yes, yes, anything may help. Do you think something could have got into the ship? No, no, no. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're working our way through Doctor Who from the beginning to figure out what's worth watching for a modern audience. I'm the hopeless Doctor Who dude who's been watching the show for decades from my parents' basement, so I no longer have any idea what I'm talking about. Guy is here representing normal human beings who don't spend their lives watching 50-year-old TV shows. Hello, Guy. <laughs> Hello. That's, that's only for very small values of normal. <laughs> So I guide us through the series, and Guy makes the final determination of what's worth watching for normal people. Going forward, I won't be telling Guy my opinion about a story ahead of time so he can go oh. in fresh and unbiased. I'll get crafty now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Given how we planned the first few episodes of this podcast, Guy happens to have a pretty good idea where I stand on this one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this being Edge of Destruction. Guy, a little birdie told me you may have an unauthorized opinion about this story. Could, could that be true? <laughs> yes, it may turn out that this could be a, a, a point of uh, dissension here for me. We'll see. <laughs> well, will this be the premature end of the podcast? You know, listen to the end to find out. <laughs> All right, let me give a little bit of context for this story. Coming off of the Daleks, which is the story that made Doctor Who. If they hadn't done that story, Doctor Who would have been canceled. But when they were planning this, they didn't know if they were going to be successful and they might be canceled. And they had an obligation to finish out the season. So they needed two episodes to finish out the season. So the story editor, David Whitaker, wrote these two episodes in a day or a weekend or something very quickly. Basically, as filler, his restrictions were they had no budget. This happens all the time to TV series. You know, at the end of the season, they've spent all their money. They have no budget left. And they have to do what's called a bottle episode, right? Which means mm -hmm. use existing sets, existing actors, <laughs> and do what you can. But you can't do anything new because we have no budget for that. Yeah. Uh, the actors had different reactions to this because it's a very... Very strange uh, story, especially we, we always keep coming back to saying this is supposed to be a kid's show, especially in the early days. And they do some very unusual things for a kid's show. And, and this story was, <laughs> was definitely one of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, on bottle episodes, you had, you had warned me that sooner or later we were going to run into one. And I, I wasn't familiar with the term until probably a year or two ago. I was watching the cartoon Archer, and I got into mm -hmm. the habit of, after watching each episode, I'd read recaps of it, you know, that various media commentators had put together. And a few of them mentioned that the one I had just watched was a bottle episode, and that, you know, I understood the concept after that. <laughs> so it's not entirely new notion. I was pleased with myself that I, partway through this episode, I recognized. It for what it was. 
Yeah. And once you know about the concept, you can both identify it and you can also realize, oh yeah, we're at the end of a season. <laughs> this is what's happening. Okay. Let's jump into the first episode, The Edge of Destruction. Susan, why don't you give me those scissors? Give them to me. Susan, what's all this about? You said there'd be no power failure. No, I didn't. I, I said that's what Ian thinks. I overheard the two of you. There's something here in the ship and he doesn't want you to tell me. I see. You just overheard a couple of words and you've come... No! You've lied to me. So the TARDIS is taking off from Scaro, yeah, the home of the Daleks from the last episode. Something goes wrong. The crew are thrown to the ground. This is very similar to Star Trek, right? It seems like all science fiction shows have to have this trope where something goes wrong and everybody gets shaken around and falls to the ground. You know, that sort yeah. of thing. I was pretty confident that that was a result of all that messing with the fluid link. <laughs> so everyone is unconscious. And then we suddenly see Barbara, and she is shrouded in a weird blanket, and she's walking around while everyone else is unconscious. She sees Ian, who she's known uh, for a long time, but she doesn't seem to know him very well. She says, Mr. Chesterton, you know, is it Ian Chesterton? Then Susan wakes up, and she's clearly acting very oddly. And she looks at Barbara and says, I know you, you know, very, not quite sure what her knowledge is. The doctor is on the floor. He's cut his head. He's unconscious. Susan doesn't recognize Ian. So already we're just in this very strange story where we have no idea what's going on. You know, why do these people not know who each other are? Then Ian is suddenly awake and standing. And he says to Barbara, you're working late tonight, Miss Wright. Very confusing. Barbara and Ian attend to the doctor, and Susan goes in another room, and she gets some scissors, which are going to become very important as we go along, unrolls a large ribbon, which is a bandage, and cuts it to place on the doctor's head. This bandage is kind of prescient in a minor way, because nowadays you can go across the street to Family Dollar and buy a pack of bandages that are already impregnated with antibiotics. So a little bit of minor science fiction fortune telling there. <laughs> right. Cause Susan tells Barbara, like there's special stuff in the bandage and the colors on the bandage will turn to white as the doctor gets cured or something. It's, I didn't try to totally pay attention, but if you watch at different points in the stories, the bandage is white or not white, and maybe that all has meaning. I didn't track it myself. <laughs> so they want some water for the doctor. Susan goes to the food machine, which we talked about last time. She seems to be a little confused about how to use it. She's trying to get water out of it. Eventually, she gets a bag of water. Then she comes back into the control room, and she's very upset because she sees that the main doors are open. She freaks out. She says the doors can't possibly open on their own. Maybe someone came in. Ian thinks maybe the doctor did it. They put the bandages onto the doctor. And she says, again, when the band is completely white, it means the wound is healed. Ian decides to investigate the doors. So he walks toward them and then suddenly they close. And I'd like to comment on the decor here because mm -hmm. there's something next to the door. It could be a lamp. Or a coat rack or a face. But what it really looks like is just a very tall bomb. 
And in <laughs> any of those functions, it's too big to be practical. Possibly a lamp. I don't know. If it was, mm -hmm. if it was a lamp, it'd be nice to see it lit up so that you get some idea of how it works. Whatever it is, it looks more decorative than useful. <laughs> I would agree with your description. And so as Ian is trying to figure out the deal with the doors, suddenly Susan faints. Ian picks her up, takes her to another room, does this pull down bed thing. It's a, you know, pretty cool looking bed, pulls down the bed from the wall, puts her in it. Watching the interview with the designer, Ray Cusick, who's the same guy who designed the Daleks in the last story. <laughs> and yeah. he didn't have the budget for a bed in terms of a prop budget, but he had a special effects budget. So oh. he made the bed a special effect <laughs> thing <laughs> because then he could pay for it through his special effects budget. So that's uh -huh. why it comes down out of the wall. The doctor wakes up, Barbara talks with him. I'm looking for anything you can add here. I'm going through the story beats because, oh, God, <laughs> I'm not a fan of this story. You know, watched it a couple days ago, made the notes, and today I was watching it before this, and I couldn't get through it. See, at this point in the episode, I'm actually pretty into it. Mm -hmm. I was enjoying it, I think partly because the actors all did a pretty good job of seeming really disjointed yeah they were all knocked unconscious but you mm -hmm. under a lot of circumstances at least on tv you'd expect the people to just kind of stand up and shake it off and they're they're not doing that they're kind of wandering around dazed for the most part mm -hmm. so even though it is slow paced it kept my interest right the actor is certainly committed mm -hmm. I had described this to you previously as an actor's exercise, which is what I feel it is. Like it's playing around with the characters and them doing strange things and seeing how that goes. And so I can totally see this working for the actors. The problem is that we had to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so far in this point in the episode, I was content. I was like, okay. it's a little slow, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> so Ian goes to the food machine and gets a water bag for Susan. And when he comes back, uh, she's standing in a very bizarre, aggressive position, holding this large pair of scissors, the scissors that she had earlier used to cut the ribbon. Yeah, and they are scary-looking scissors, too. This is their little uh, kindergarten scissors. Yeah, and when I say she's holding them, I mean, she's holding them in a in an attack posture, right? right. It's like, if you come any closer, I'm going to stab you. Hey, kid show. Okay. Um <laughs> And then she sort of gets really upset and ends up stabbing the foam on the bed really, uh, really strongly. I mean, really, uh, what's the right word here? Vehemently, I think. Uh, <laughs> she, uh, in lieu of stabbing Barbara. Ian, I think you're saying. Which seems to be her, her first preference. She restrained herself, I think, and out of frustration was stabbing the chair. But it really, uh, she looked like she meant it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this was very controversial. I don't even know, frankly, how they managed to get it into the episode and get it out. Later, Verity Lambert, the producer, apologized for this to the management at BBC and to the standards people and said, yes, you know, we shouldn't have done this. And I as part of all this, I watched an interview with her. Now, she she has died now, but this mm. interview was probably done about 10 or 15 years ago before she died when they put out this DVD. 
And she still said, yeah, that was a mistake. On a kid's <laughs> show, we shouldn't have had Susan <laughs> being homicidal with scissors. Yeah. The thing they are thinking about is scissors are a common household item. Mm-hmm. And so in a kid's show, if you were showing them how they could use a common household item in a dangerous way, that brings up some questions. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not it was a bad decision for a children's show, I'm personally grateful that it was done because I thought it was mm. very entertaining. I thought it was a really good that, you know, when I saw her start that stabbing, I was like, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you pulling out and looking at it as adults 50 years later. Honestly, the scissors thing to me is probably the most interesting thing in in these two episodes, right? Then the crew is all talking and the doctor says, well, I don't know what's going on, but the ship must have put us down somewhere. Barbara is thinking, do you think something could have gotten onto the ship because the doors were open? So maybe something got in here. Susan zombie-like, so she has been in the other room where there was the bed and she was supposed to be resting, and she wanders in to, (laughs) actually, this cracked me up. So, first of all, she all of a sudden has a different dress on. Did you notice that? It's a black dress. It was different. Yeah, it's like a black monk's robe almost without a hood. Yeah, no idea where it came from, no idea when she put it on. But she, while people are talking, she sort of goes behind them, sees the scissors on a table. And this reminded me of The Breakfast Club. If you remember that movie from the 80s, there was a girl in there who was obsessed with knives. And at one point, while no one's looking, she suddenly um, reaches forward and grabs a knife that's been stuck into a table. I saw the movie, but it's been probably since the 80s, although I'm guessing... It might have been the Ali Sheedy character you're thinking of, because she had that kind of creepy vibe to her. Yeah, 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 it was. Well, maybe we'll have to do 80s teen movies at some point as a theme. (laughs) (laughs) We could do that. Very similar to Ali Sheedy, uh, Susan sees the scissors and kind of sneakily grabs them while no one's looking. So we're back to the scissors. (laughs) Yeah. Ian and the doctor go to the fault locator. So this is a a location in the main control room where you can kind of see what's going wrong with the TARDIS. The doctor just can't concentrate. He needs Ian's help, asks him to look for uh, some particular number going by. We'll see what this comes up with. Meanwhile, Barbara goes to Susan, who's now back in the other room in bed holding the scissors. She has a towel on her head, which kind of Makes her look like a nun. <laughs> Barbara asks her for the scissors. That doesn't go too well. Uh, she she doesn't want to give them up. She holds up the scissors towards Barbara. So now she, you know, previously she threatened Ian with them. Now she's threatening Barbara. Barbara grabs them. Probably not a great idea. When I was younger, I took some karate and stuff. <laughs> One of the things you learn in a knife fight is people get hurt in a knife fight. You don't yeah. go grabbing <laughs> the sharp stuff. Then Barbara and Susan talk about the possibility that there was an intruder in the ship. And in fact, Susan is upset because earlier Ian had said to Barbara, don't tell Susan there might be an intruder. And Susan had overheard this and she's upset that they're lying to her. And Barbara says, well, where would the intruder hide? And Susan says, in one of us. <laughs> right. And it was actually in the notes that I took on the episode right before I actually wrote down those two lines. 
Right, the line right before that in my notes was that Susan's paranoia is reminiscent of the thing, and by that I mean John Carpenter's the thing, which is true version of the thing. Uh, all of the the Howard Hawks versions good too, you know. But uh, it sounds like another future topic for us to cover. <laughs> anyway, this is really capturing some of the tone of that movie, and in fact, this dialogue they have. But where would it hide? And one of us echoes the tagline of that movie, which is, man is the warmest place to hide. <laughs> you know, it might be one of those things where maybe John Carpenter was a little bit of a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, this would have been so much more of an interesting story if they had been doing the thing. <laughs> <laughs> But that turns out not to be the case, you know, and that just kind of goes away <laughs> after this conversation. Yeah. Well, they they still don't know what's going on, and there's still a lot of paranoia going around. It goes in a different direction in the long run. <laughs> Ian shows up to talk with them. Uh, I noticed, and I'm not sure where this happened, all of a sudden his shoulder is ripped on his coat. So, mm -hmm. And when he showed up, he seemed strangely off kilter to me, which I thought was probably a deliberate decision to increase the paranoia and weirdness because he's talking about how well things went and he says, fantastic, but he says it with a complete <laughs> lack of enthusiasm. <laughs> and you could easily believe, oh, maybe he's the monster possessed by the monster. <laughs> so it, for me, the episode's still working pretty well at this point. Yeah, he says, we checked everything, and it's all perfect. And then he says, the doctor has gone to turn on the scanner. And Susan freaks out. No, he mustn't turn on the scanner. I think she jumps up and runs. <laughs> and again, with the paranoia, my first thought when she said that is, oh, she is the monster, and she knows something. The scanner's going to reveal that she is the monster. <laughs> Again, I wish you were right. <laughs> I, wish, <laughs> I wish that had been the story. <laughs> so the doctor approaches the console, turns on a switch. Uh, the scanner comes to life. The monitor shows a scene from the English countryside. And then the TARDIS doors suddenly open and then close again. And now the scanner shows a new image. And Susan says, yes, I remember that from four or five journeys back. And this is a really interesting thing in the, in the history of Dr. Who, because this is confirming that, yes, her and the doctor, before Barbara and Ian came along, had been traveling and having adventures. And the doctor says, yes, this is the planet Quinnis from the fourth universe. Unfortunately, we never get to see Quinnis from the fourth uh, uh, universe uh, <laughs> in the future of the show. Well, they left, so it couldn't have been all that great. Now we get weird psychologically in that the doctor suddenly accuses Ian and Barbara of sabotaging the TARDIS. And he says it's blackmail that they want him to return them to England so they've sabotaged it. Well, first of all, they've been telling him all along that they want to go back to England. So <laughs> I'm not quite sure where the blackmail is in that, you know, it's not like it was a secret or anything. <laughs> Barbara goes off on him about this. Yeah, she really gives the doctor... A handful of abuse. I, th I thought she really put some emotion in it. You want to go down on your hands and knees and thank us. Gratitude's the last thing you'll ever have, or any sort of common sense either. 
And I wanted to mention, for the benefit of viewers, just a fun little thing to look or listeners, well, viewers of the show, <laughs> listeners here, whatever. <laughs> Something to watch for. On the Brit box, the time mark is 1835. The doctor goes into a sentence of absolute gibberish. <laughs> it's just incomprehensible for about five seconds there. You're the cause of this disaster, and you both knock, you, you knock both shoot in the land uh, unconscious. You know, it's just, it's just a flubbed line, but he really uh, really does a number on it. <laughs> so entertaining. And then in the middle of that, she sees a clock that has some melted hands, and she now freaks out. The production crew was embarrassed about this clock. The whole idea here is it was supposed to look melted like a dolly painting, and mm. it, it just is, there is some melting, but it doesn't look anything like that. Also, the director wanted to have, like, some steam coming out of the clock and everything. Oh. It, but, you know, they just didn't have the budget or time to do any of that, so so it's a little cheesy. Yeah, to me, it just looked like a very elaborate clock. I was like, oh, that's kind of pretty. <laughs> and they're so upset when they see it. So, you know, it has this big impact on them. Yeah. And then... Ian looks at his watch, and he can barely see the numbers. Uh, so clearly we have a clock thing going on here. Now, that effect was effective because, you know, you get a close enough view of the dial of the watch that uh, you can see the numbers are there, but they're just blurred and distorted, and it's a little bit eerie. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's good. And then, out of nowhere, the doctor brings in a tray of tea for everybody. <laughs> I don't know where he's been, when he did this, but and he says, I've decided we need more time to think. And, of course, being British, what do you do? You get tea. <laughs> yeah, he said, we'll have a little nightcap, I think. So he, he might have even had something stronger in there. <laughs> well, of course, he had something a lot stronger in there, and it took me all about five seconds to guess that was why he was suddenly being <laughs> conciliatory. <laughs> but, uh, ah, I might have missed something there. We'll have to see. Okay. <laughs> so here, Ian and the doctor get into a debate, and I liked this quote from the doctor. He says, uh, and I don't even remember what preceded it, but he says, One man's law is another man's crime. Sleep on it, Chesterton. Sleep on it. <laughs> and, you know, that's true, right? That's a really yeah, interesting yeah. little statement. <laughs> no, I, there are certainly some laws that I think of as pretty criminal. <laughs> Barbara and Susan go to sleep. Maybe, you know, actually, I think you have a point that I think I might have missed because Barbara and Susan go to sleep. The doctor walks in and chuckles about this. And then he goes to Ian, who's now also sleeping. So I'm, I'm assuming your assumption is that he knocked them out intentionally with something in the tea. And I think in the next episode, he actually fesses up to it. Though I think it's hmm. just a minor bit of dialogue, but I didn't make a note of that, so I can't prove it. But I'm pretty sure <laughs> it it's briefly touched on in the next episode. Well, exactly. it makes sense. I, I missed it while I was sort of falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor goes to the console to do something. We don't know what. And then all of a sudden, somebody puts their hand around his throat. And it's the end of the episode. And at, at the end of the episode, I figured it's a woman's arm. It's either Barbara or Susan or possibly the interloper if it actually has a physical form. <laughs> Next episode is The Brink of Disaster. Oh, Doctor, don't you see? 
Something terrible's happening to all of us. Not to me. Nothing's happened to me. This is a plot between the two of you to get control of my ship. Oh, that isn't true. Can't you see I found you out? Why won't you admit it, hmm? Yeah. As I think I assumed, it was Ian strangling the doctor. <laughs> it could have been anybody for some reason. Maybe it's just because the arm wasn't very hairy. I, 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 I don't know. I, I just Are you saying Ian is not manly? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. You know, he seems like a good, stable, you know specimen of british manhood and all that you know he just doesn't have very hairy arms that's all <laughs> okay so ian was strangling the doctor he faints to the ground barbara and the doctor are arguing and she's trying to get him to understand that something has happened to everyone on the ship he's not buying it not not to me not to me <laughs> this is just a plot to get control of my ship so he's gone total paranoid especially about ian and barbara yeah, and he's he's simultaneously really, really PO'd at them. And also, he's conveying his pleasure that he's finally going to be rid of these pesky <laughs> school teachers, you know, which uh, the fact that he seems delighted at it just gives him more to uh, repent of later on. <laughs> Susan shows up, and she agrees with the doctor that Barbara and Ian are in the wrong, that, you know, they're apparently plotting against him, so she's just uh, making everything worse. <laughs> so eventually, Susan realizes that Barbara and Ian are okay, but the doctor is saying they must be put off the ship. <laughs> yeah, and is it at this point where the fault locator goes off? Yeah, we get this big because, sound, and Susan says it's the danger signal. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's it gets your attention. <laughs> Doctor says the whole area of the fault locator has just given us a warning. And Susan says, uh, but everything can't be wrong. <laughs> the doctor says, but that's what it means. Everything is wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, not being the biggest fan of the story. I don't know. The doctor suddenly decides that Barbara and Ian are not plotting against him. And he suddenly says, I just realized the danger we're in. The ship is on the point of disintegration. It didn't have to do with you guys. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea, you know, why he has this realization. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, well, you know, his mind's already starting to put things together about the uh, the fault locator, the strain, <laughs> way it's behaving and so forth. Yeah, but, right. But somehow from all that, he also manages to deduce that they have 10 minutes or less to survive, <laughs> which is a very precise time range. Yeah, good for him. He's a smart guy. And now we do get into an interesting discussion here about what's been going on. Barbara says, we had time taken away from us. Now it's been given back because it's running out. Now, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but the doctor says, if only I had a clue. If only I had a clue. I think, I think perhaps we've been given nothing else but clues. And she starts to put together this thing where... Uh, every time someone approached the control console or a particular part of the control console, that was when things would go wrong. One part of the control console has not been a problem if it was approached. First of all, it's really interesting that the doctor doesn't solve this. Barbara does. And especially in modern Doctor Who, the doctor tends to solve all problems. Okay. It's interesting that in this case, she was the one who did it. And as he absorbs what she's saying, she then tells Barbara and Susan to stand by the doors and to say what they see outside when it opens. 
Then related to your comment about the 10 minutes, doctor says to Ian, you know, we have five minutes only when the end does come, they won't know anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a, a stark statement. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, in his own callous way, he's trying to do them a favor, you know, and just sort of keep them oblivious of what's ahead. I think. <laughs> Again, we're trying to protect the women. But, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> Speaking of oblivion, when the doors open, they report that they opened on nothing, mm. which isn't entirely true because there's light coming through it. And <laughs> presumably the TARDIS has some kind of force field or something because otherwise there would also be a lack of air out there and, uh, you know, probably many other kinds of wavelengths <laughs> of radiation besides visible light, you know, so it's not literally nothing, but there's nothing discernible aside from <laughs> Yeah, I think you're thinking way more about this than the creators of it did. <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. Maybe I was, I, I, at this point, I'm still, I mean, the first episode and up to here in this episode, I, uh, I was, I was pretty absorbed. I'm okay. Doing good. <laughs> uh, well, I was on my phone. <laughs> so here the doctor says something that made no sense to me. He says, it's our journey. <laughs> oh, and that is, that's the photograph cycle that's showing. It starts off with the pastoral English countryside. Then it goes to that planet Qualys or whatever it's called. So the monitor is showing these things, right? Right. These are the photographs that are, that are showing up in a cycle on the monitor. And that is journey. That is recreating the journey of the group in the TARDIS from England to the planets to where they are now, which, you know, the photos sort of zoom out to show a whole galaxy. And that turns out to be, have ended up at the birth of a new solar system. <laughs> well, I'm glad you caught all that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Barbara says the defense mechanism stopped up and it's been trying to tell us ever since. Again, I have no idea what that means. Now, the doctor has a very compelling speech while he's leaning against the console. And in watching interviews and everything about this, everyone was surprised that he pulled this off because it's a relatively long monologue with some, you know, difficult things to say in it. And he nails it. I know. I know. I said it would take the force of a total solar system to attract the power away from my ship. We are at the very beginning. The new start of a solar system. Outside, the atoms are rushing towards each other, fusing, coagulating, until minute little collections of matter are created. And so the process goes on and on until dust is formed. Dust then becomes solid entity, a new birth of a sun and its planets. <laughs> They're trying to problem solve what happened that caused whatever's going on. And Ian says, what did you do when we left Scarrow? The doctor says, I used the fast return switch. 
So Ian and the doctor start looking at the console, and and we'll find out more about the fast return switch. But a funny thing here is you will see above the fast return switch the handwritten words with like a Sharpie, fast return switch. (laughs) And in the interviews about this, no one can remember how this got there, (laughs) but the... The assumption mm. is that because as Carol Ann Ford said that she and William Hartnell would write on the console what the different buttons were because they needed to remember where they were, especially since kids watching the show, you know, would recognize, oh, these are the buttons that open the door, that sort of thing. And they wanted to be consistent. Mm. Yeah, they wanted to have a continuity for the show. Okay, yeah. Right. So they would write that on there, but their assumption was that these would not be shown (laughs) in the show, right? And so this handwritten fast return switch is shown in the show. Everyone agrees it wasn't intended. No one's quite sure how it got there, but that's probably how it got there. I think it's appropriate because really at this stage, as we'll see shortly, we'll have the third piece of broken TARDIS technology in three storylines. The whole machine has kind of a cobbled together feeling to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And I think that's an important part of the history of Doctor Who. The Doctor can never totally get control of the TARDIS because there's just too many moving parts and too many things going wrong. <laughs> yeah. It turns out the Doctor suddenly realizes, oh, so on Scarrow, when they wanted to get away quickly, the fast return switch was supposed to take them like to their last location very quickly. Without any programming. That's the whole point of that button. Right. When he pushed that button, though, it got stuck. Yeah. And so they just kept returning and returning, like, to earlier and earlier in history until they were going to end up being obliterated because they were going to go beyond the beginning of history. At least that's that's my understanding <laughs> of this. Not not that I can claim to be an expert. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's something like that. Or, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but having that stuck down is keeps putting more and more pressure on the TARDIS of one sort or another. Yeah. So now that they'd figured out what the problem was, and it was just a little spring in there, so you know, they just had to put an extra little spring in there, and, and that fixed everything. Yeah. Susan says to the doctor, well, what about Ian and Barbara? You said some really terrible things to them, because he accused them of trying to blackmail and take over the TARDIS and all these things. To his credit, the doctor says to Barbara, you were absolutely right. We all owe you our lives. Because she was the one who sort of put together the clues about the clock and everything else and kind of figured out what was going on. Yeah. After the crisis is averted, uh, everybody's happy and relieved, except Barbara, who's standing off to the side, and she looks like somebody just ran over her puppy. I mean, she's just really... (laughs) feeling miserable about the whole thing because, you know, the doctor really treated her badly and she probably feels bad about, you know, some of the thoughts she had about companions and whatnot. But uh, she's feeling really bad and she retires off to another room and that's when the doctor goes in and he, uh, it's as apologies go, it's it's okay. You know, he, he <laughs> says what needs to get conveyed, I guess. Well, uh, that's uh, you, young lady. Well, uh, you were absolutely right. It was your instinct and intuition against my logic, and uh, you succeeded. 
I mean, the blackouts and, and the still pictures and, 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 uh, and the clock. Well, uh, you read a story into all these things and uh, was determined to hold on to it. We all owe you our lives. Now, whether Barbara should forgive him as easily as she apparently does, that's a separate question. You know, he manages to at least come up with an apology that acknowledges that he was a jerk, that she is very valuable, is the words he used. Some, something valuable, he says. Mm-hmm. That's accurate enough. Now things have been cleared up. The doctor sets a new destination for the TARDIS. There's one thing, uh, before we go further, uh, one thing that I don't think we really touched on uh, in discussing why all these clues came about, and it, it's to give the digest version, the doctor explains that the TARDIS, though it's a machine, it has kind of a machine intellect of its own. And it was actually trying to communicate all these mm. clues so that the crew might know what was going on before it was too late. So that adds another little bit of lore to the TARDIS. <laughs> it actually has its own alien form of sentience. And it doesn't have an operator console to print out things like, are you really <laughs> pushing the button or is it stuck? <laughs> That's a good point, and the conscience and the essence of the TARDIS is, you know, an ongoing thing throughout the series, especially in the later series. Oh, so, so this actually started a trend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. They have a new destination. They've landed. It's What they can tell is that it's cold outside, so they dress up warm and leave together the best of friends. <laughs> End of the story. <laughs> Yeah, and I and I like the little detail that the doctor gives Ian a coat that uh, it's not clear that he was given or that it was given to him by Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> I think he says he acquired it from Gilbert and Sullivan. So from what I've seen of the doctor so far, he, he could have acquired it in various ways. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, it's a coat with a little bit of history behind it, so I thought that was cute. Okay, so. What are your overall thoughts about this story and these these two episodes? <laughs> uh, well, I know this does not mesh with your <laughs> own opinion, but I think of the we've we've seen the cavemen story arc, the Daleks story arc, and now this one. And this honestly is probably my favorite of the three. Wow, okay. And uh I just I, I have some notes to justify my outrageous uh, opinion here. I, the first half of the first episode, I was really fascinated with just the sense of wrongness in it. You know, the paranoia, the uh, the way everyone just acted a little off, and it wasn't clear, are they just recovering from the unconsciousness, or is there something else going on there? Just kept me interested all the way through both of the episodes. All the characters get a chance to shine a little bit and show off their acting chops a bit. And that, a lot of the time, that's not something I notice a lot. I, I'm not I'm not as perceptive about acting or the lack thereof mm-hmm. as, you know, say you might be. But sometimes I can tell, you know, sometimes it just goes whoosh right over my head, you know. <laughs> But in this case, I think uh, I think all the all the cast had their own little moments that were really neat. 
Another thing I liked is that it's just a huge shaggy dog story. You go through two whole episodes to find out, oh, this witch was stuck. I like that. I uh, <laughs> I can see how many people would say, oh, what a ripoff. And, uh, but that's part of what I like about it is it's just kind of a brazen thing to put in there as the uh, culmination of all this suspense. Is that the switch was stuck. Oh, okay. No, all better. <laughs> <laughs> so the actors, like the actor who plays Ian, if you watch the interviews with them, he actually said he was really disappointed. Like he liked these episodes, but he thought that that was a pretty lame explanation. <laughs> Uh, but I'm glad it worked for you. <laughs> well, I, in, in my thoughts, I mean, I was just too busy, you know, watching my phone and I just, you had seen these before though. I have. Yes. But here, here's the thing. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of theater and I've watched experimental things and, you know, I like long movies and all that. So, and I am not a person a lot of people these days, when they watch something, they're always on their phone while they're watching it. And that's not me. I'm, I'm mm. actually watching yeah. what I'm doing. And I, and I, I think that's important to enjoy something. So when I find myself on my phone, it's, it's not a good sign. <laughs> I just come back to what I described it as originally. To me, this is an exercise. It's a way for people to experiment with their characters, but it's not, uh, to me, it's not something that we as viewers, should be seeing now probably the best argument i've seen from people who like the show is that they say well they start out this story being a disparate set of people and they kind of end of end it more being a team maybe mm. you know <laughs> yeah yeah there's that aspect i just i just genuinely was involved throughout the whole thing mm. it, you know and, and probably if i went back to it in a year or so knowing how it turns out you know and not if assuming that a year from now i'd still remember all the details of what happens in it <laughs> you won't um, yeah. <laughs> but uh knowing all that might make it less paranoid because like if i rewatch carpenter's the thing even though I know everything that's going to happen, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I still feel uh, the paranoia and you know, all that. Uh, <laughs> right. This would I would it have the same magic if I revisited? I can't say, but on the first viewing, I really got into it. I liked it. Well, I'm I'm glad for you. Uh, first of all, t a couple things. One, uh, we absolutely should do John Carpenter's films at some point. I, I think oh, he's yeah. a really interesting director. The thing is, one of my favorite films ever. You know, some of his other films are interesting, maybe not quite up to that, but that's, that's a yeah. whole other discussion. I'll also say for, for any listeners to this who, who watch this based on Guy's recommendation, <laughs> you know, don't cancel the show, cancel Guy. That's, <laughs> that's his. Fair enough. If you need to do a lawsuit, you know, I will volunteer to testify to his bad character. So <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and I, I, I don't have much defense. So. <laughs> Easy target. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So next up is Marco Polo, which is the well thought of classic, uh, beautifully executed, taking place in the land once known as Cafe. 
Oh, wait, nope, not that one, because it was erased. <laughs> right, we skip ahead to episode 21 or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and this is a real tragedy, because people's perception is that Marco Polo is a really interesting story. It was certainly beautiful. You can tell from uh, pictures that were taken, and as we'll see in the next story, Ian actually wears the costume that he had from Marco Polo, and it looks great. It's really interesting. So what's the deal with missing stories this is the first one we've encountered there will be many more in the future in the next few years of doctor who and the deal was at the time you showed a tv show once maybe you showed it twice if it was really popular and that was it and videotape was expensive so after showing it once or twice they would wipe the videotape and put you know the latest cricket scores or whatever onto the <laughs> tape because who needed to see something again yeah. There was no system for seeing shows again. Once it was done, it was done. And if you hadn't seen it, you didn't see it. That's what happened to a whole bunch of the Doctor Who stories, unfortunately, in the early days. We're very lucky we have the ones we do, and a number of the ones we have were recovered from people's homes or copies of the film that people had archived or even copies of the film that were found in other markets where, you know, the Doctor Who stories had been sent. And so we'll talk more about that as we get there. But we don't have Marco Polo. So what are we really watching next? It is The Keys of Marinus. And I guess the question for us will be, is this another classic like Marco Polo may have been, or is this the one that actually should have been erased? <laughs> so, <laughs> join us next time to find out. All right. I'd like to uh, talk to you, if I may. We've landed on a planet and the air is good, but it's rather cold outside. Susan told me. Yes, you haven't forgiven me, have you? You said terrible things to us. Yes, I suppose it's the injustice that's upsetting you, and when I made a threat to put you off the ship, it must have affected you very deeply. What do you care what I think or feel? As we learn about each other, so we learn about ourselves. Perhaps. Oh, yes. Because I accused you unjustly, you were determined to prove me wrong. So you put your mind to the problem and uh, luckily you solved it.